The passage of Scripture that we want to focus on this morning is found in Ephesians 4, verse 28, as we continue our series of sermons throughout the book of Ephesians. Uh, But for a bit of uh, insight and a bit of a broader context, we want to begin by reading a parallel passage from 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, that passage is found on page 1,361, while our text from Ephesians 4, verse 28, is found on page 1,346. So we read first from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, uh, from page 1,361. And we are reminded again that we have here the Word of God that is given by inspiration, that is inerrant and infallible, and is to be authoritative over our doctrine and our life. Uh, So we read as follows from 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." We then turn over to the words of our text from Ephesians 4, verse 28, and we read there as follows, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. A congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many of us have observed over the last several years Uh, the nearly ubiquitous presence of help-wanted signs. What I mean by that is the signs help-wanted seem to be everywhere. Uh, In the front of most businesses, uh, in the front of uh, many restaurants, and I've had the opportunity just anecdotally to talk from time to time with uh, a few business owners, whether they be in manufacturing, whether they be in uh, the building trades, whether they be in uh, some other line of work. And one of the questions I often ask is, are you hiring? Not that I'm looking for other employment, but just trying to keep my, my thumb, so to speak, on the pulse of uh, where we are in the, the labor demand. And I would say nine out of ten business owners indicate we are always trying to hire. We are always looking for employees. Now, I know statistics can be variously critiqued and discerned, 
Uh, but I did a little research uh, this week on jobs and job openings in North America, more specifically in the United States of America. We're told that currently in the United States of America, there are 10 million job openings. 10 million job openings. We're also told that there are only 5.7 million unemployed persons who are looking for work. So 10 million job openings. 5.7 million unemployed people looking for work. So you can see that the positions far, far, far outnumber the persons. Uh, another statistic compared to 2020, in the United States of America, there are 3 million fewer persons who are actively participating in the workforce among those who would be considered of the age of the workforce. So you might simply put it this way, less and less people are actively employed or even actively seeking employment. And why is that? I think there's a whole host of reasons, but I do think one of the reasons is the gradual drift in our society away from a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview that understands that work is not an evil to be avoided. That vocational labor is not something to get out of as quickly as possible. And this brings us more directly to our text, but we want to give a bit of context again by way of reminder. This is not just some presentation on good economics, but rather this is a gospel sermon. A gospel sermon that explains, following our text, what conversion looks like, what spiritual conversion looks like. Redemption is accomplished by the grace of God, but when that grace of God is poured out into the heart of a person, it changes that person. And we must always understand this. Redemption is something that is active within a person, bringing about a change, bringing about a transformation. A transformation that is very practical. Our religion or our spirituality, our faith, the Christian faith, is not just something for Sundays. Now, certainly our Christian faith ought to impact our Sundays, but it's not just about our Sundays. The Christian faith is not just something that we consider once in a while when we go on a spiritual retreat in some type of monastic setting. But no, the Christian faith is a faith that impacts our workplaces and our wallets. Simply put, there is an antithesis between the way an unbeliever shows up for work on Monday morning and the way a believer shows up for work on Monday morning. Not that the Christian has a different assembly line or a different wing in the office or a different plant, uh, but the Christian comes with a different mindset. The Christian works maybe doing the exact same work, but for a different reason and in a different way. Well, we want to consider that this morning uh, with our text before us with this theme, death to theft. And as we consider that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the deed in death to theft, and then secondly, the contrast in death to theft, and then thirdly, the motivation 
for death to theft. So this life of conversion that is a result of the grace of God being shed abroad into our hearts includes the spiritual exercise of mortifying theft, of being done with stealing, or the inappropriate and improper obtaining of our neighbor's material goods or possessions. So first of all, then consider with me, the deed in death to theft is that of a spiritual conversion. Simply put, and maybe bluntly put, you and I cannot die the way we are born. You and I cannot die the way we are born, but we must experience the regenerating grace of God that also brings about the life of conversion or the life of sanctification. This includes, of course, the gradual but steady transformation of the soul and therefore of all of the actions of the person so that there is a change. A change not only in our state, that's what we refer to, biblically speaking, as justification. There must be that also, but a change in our own condition. We must be washed, spiritually speaking. We must be cleansed. We must be sanctified. And that includes the fact that then there must be the mortification or the putting to death. That's all that big theological word means. Mortification just means to put something to death, to put certain thoughts to death, to put certain actions to death. And the deed or the actions that must, by the sanctifying grace of God, be put to death within the life of the Christian is that of theft, of blatant theft. You can think here of, you know, breaking into a store and physically taking an item off of the shelf without properly paying for it and just running away with it. Well, that's a blatant form of theft, forbidden clearly by God. You shall not steal. You shall not blatantly, whether it be with a show of force or underneath the cloud of secrecy, you shall not improperly take possessions that do not belong to you. And of course, our culture also needs to hear this because there are so many excuses that are given uh, when there are the exercises of blatant theft. Well, if only there was less disparity between the social classes and on and on and on, and all of those things can be considered in a different context, but at the end of the day, the commandment is clear. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Behind this commandment lies the whole idea of private property, of ownership. Of course, God is the one who sovereignly owns everything, the cow upon a thousand hills, including all material elements. Uh, but God is pleased in his providence to give to certain per persons certain amounts of material possessions. And he gives those material possessions to those persons so that they possess what we call private property. It belongs to them as it has been given to them by God. And they, of course, then have the responsibility to be good stewards of those gifts. But those gifts are given to them, not to us. So your car is your car. It's not my car. And my car is my car. It's not your car. God, through various means, gave to you your car, and God, through various means, gave to me my car. And it would be theft if I were to go out in the parking lot and just drive off with your car. 
Uh, but perhaps that's not something that hits so close to home, these blatant forms uh, of theft. Perhaps it's more subtle forms of theft, subtle forms, a more quieter way. And our Heidelberg Catechism is very helpful to identify some of these more subtler forms uh, of theft in question and answer 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, Just note again, if these words ever find the ears of a civil magistrate, God's law requires that you punish theft. In our society, we need laws that are on biblical norms, that theft would be punished because it is an evil. But our catechism continues, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate. The sleight of hand in business transactions. Something made to appear legitimate. A scheme. And not in an exhaustive way, but in a helpful way, the Catechism goes on and says, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. So any unfair transaction in the business realm forbidden by God as theft. I also want to identify one other area before we transition into our second point, which would fall condemned by the Eighth Commandment, which is becoming more and more common in our day, and that is the practice of gambling. The advertisements for sports gambling seem to be never-ending. And I think in the past this wasn't such a concern among us because it wasn't as much of a temptation for us, perhaps. But this is not legitimate vocational labor. This is not a divinely ordained way in which to obtain material possessions and gain. And so I would plead with you as your pastor, avoid gambling. We could identify the absolute horrors that have come upon many, many a family and many, many of a household because of an addiction to gambling, financial ruin. The odds are always on the house, so to speak. That's why the houses of gambling institutions are usually Very, very, very nice-looking houses. The gambler never wins. He or she never wins even when they, quote, so-called win. Gambling is motivated by greed, but gambling often results in a pointless squandering of a person's financial gifts. So these are just a few of the areas in which We are called to mortification, to death, to theft. But 
the Scriptures give us a contrast. If that is what is to be put to death, theft, what is to come to life? What, what is the opposite of that? And the opposite includes a contrasted action, which is the activity of labor or of work. Vocational labor especially is in mind here. Uh, This idea that is used by Paul within this word, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you know what, be done with theft and then just sit idly by. As the negative action is put off, a positive action is to be put on. And one of the most helpful ways to avoid the temptation of theft is to be industriously engaged in vocational labor. And this also brings out this certain principle. If you want to know the best way to avoid evil, the best way to avoid a certain evil is to fully engage in the opposite, positive, righteous action. You want to know how to avoid telling lies? Be very zealous in telling the truth. You want to know how to avoid, for example, being rebellious against authorities? Be seriously engaged in the pursuit of honoring those in positions of authority. You want to know the best way, for example, uh, to avoid theft? Be busy in your own vocational labor, understanding that God has created you not to sit by idly, just scratching off lottery tickets and entering into your bets and weighing the options and the hedges, but rather to be busy with that which is good, which includes one's daily vocational labors. Because labor, although yes, it does have the added negative insight of, of a certain toil as a result of the fall, but labor in and of itself, work in and of itself, is not evil. Now, somehow, somewhere along the way in our society's history, we've adopted this idea that work is something to be avoided at all cost. Just recently, I've heard it reported, I don't know all the details, but in France, because of necessity, because simply the, the math doesn't add up, and so I think the, re, the retirement age was, was 62, uh, and uh, the leader of France was trying to move that to 64 because apparently they, they ran the numbers and the ledger just doesn't add up. If you have an increased lifespan and you have more people who are in retirement than who are in the workforce, guess what? The numbers just simply don't work. And if you have a declining birth rate, basically if you are burying more than you are birthing in any society, the inevitable consequence is this is not good, this is not sustainable, this is not workable. So the leader of France came out and said, we really need to up the retirement age by two years. So instead of retiring at 62, you have to work till 64. Riots in the street. The people said, no, no. Because we work to retire. Now, I'm not saying retirement in and of itself is is an evil to be avoided. Of course not. But this whole idea that work is a necessary evil is not biblical. Our God is a God who works in creation, in providence, in redemption. Our Savior is a Savior who works. So Jesus himself said, I and my Father work. 
And we as human beings, we have the unique privilege of bearing the image of our God in in a, a way reflecting His very persons and His very activity. So I understand the need for rest, and indeed Christ Himself said the disciples come apart and rest for a while. And this is why the Sabbath day is so wonderfully beneficial. And everything should be done uh, to seek to preserve a day of rest because we need it, because our God Himself, after six days of His creative work, rested on the seventh day and sanctified the seventh day and said, this will be an ongoing principle for my people. But work itself is a creation ordinance. And this is why God gives us the abilities that we have in various skills and various interests. But God gives us gifts, and those gifts are to be used to glorify Him and to honor Him by engaging in the work. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write to the Thessalonians and say, I, I demonstrated this principle when I was in your midst. I wasn't a busybody. I didn't just sit idly by. I didn't just pass my time with inactivity. But rather, I labored among you. I, I worked among you to show you a pattern of what it was for the Christian life in a very real and practical manner. Work is good. Just remember that. Work is good. It's not an evil to be avoided. Verse 28 of our text, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Now notice that there's this moral evaluation that, that, that working is good, but there's also this kind of broad application. The Apostle Paul doesn't simply specify one type of work that is good, but with a broad range, he says work is good. And God creates people with different talents, different interests, different skill sets, and this is to be understood, and this is to be complemented. Not all of us are designed to engage in the same form of work because, practically speaking, just as in the Christian body there are a variety of gifts, so also in society there are a variety of gifts. If everybody had the exact same interests and the exact same skill sets and the exact same talents, society would not be able to function. And so Paul says, Labor is good, and I I want to give this as a word of encouragement to especially young people, wherever within the bounds, yes, of the Scriptures, wherever your interests lie, as far as vocational labors, wherever your skill sets lie, that's good. Don't think that you have to do what everyone else is doing when it comes to vocational labor. I've said this before, but isn't it remarkable that our Lord Jesus Christ was engaged in physical manual labor in a carpenter's workshop? He didn't spend his time amongst the Sanhedrin. He didn't spend his time among the Pharisees. But he shows that even what you might say, uh, the most blue-collar of the trades is sanctified when done unto the glory of God. And you and I also ought to remember that. We need practical positions of labor. 
Who's going to mow the grass? Who's going to plow the streets? Who's going to maintain the power lines? Now, that's on one end of the spectrum, you may say. Uh, who's going to plant the crops? Who's going to raise the cattle? That's a, another area of interest. And certainly, uh, who's going to uh, operate on you uh, when you have a medical emergency? Who's going to care for you, perhaps if you become incapacitated uh, as far as your uh, physical functions? See, these are all different areas. Who's going to be the first responder? Uh, who's going to be uh, the politician from a Christian perspective who seeks to enforce and bring about good laws that reward those who do well and who punish those who do evil? And let us not forget who is going to rock the cradle that maintains and holds the future life of society and the future life of the church. All of these aspects of work are good when done unto the Lord. You can think of this when you go out and whatever legitimate vocational labors and you give yourself fully to the task at hand using all of your skill sets, all of your potential, all of your abilities, God is pleased. He smiles upon a day's work well done. But in order to evaluate whether a day's work is well done, we need to consider, in our third point, the motivation for death to theft, which is also then a motivation for industrious labor. Now certainly, our industrious labor, our vocational activities, are the primary divine means by which we receive our daily bread. We pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. We understand that our dependence is completely upon God, and yet we don't just sit passively, idly by, but rather we understand that God is a God who uses means. And so we go out and we give ourselves fully to our vocational labors, knowing that this is the primary means by which we receive our daily bread. But there should be something more that motivates us in our vocational labors and that is a desire, a desire to display charity. Again, just look at our text. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, rather let him labor so that he might have a nice healthy portfolio and an early retirement and great financial success. Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, that they're properly received and properly used, but let him work with his hands what is good so that he may have something to give him who has need. Now, if you want to talk about countercultural, here it is. What? I'm to work diligently in my vocational labors so that in part I might have something to give to him who is in need? But this is the biblical truth. Now, those who are in need could be further clarified by what is said in 2 Thessalonians. Those who are in need are not those who refuse to work. The Apostle Paul says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. So a handout is not always the biblical imperative. But for the person who labors, Part of what ought to motivate him for his labors is that he might then come and present a gift to those who are in need. There should be a desire to give. Uh, one passage in addition to what we've read some, 
Second Thessalonians uh, that I want to read this morning is from Second Corinthians chapter 9. Because this was also an exhortation that the Apostle Paul gave to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians 9, uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Now, we know that principle, but the Apostle Paul is not talking here in the context of agronomy. You know, he's not saying, well, you know, bump up uh, the, the, the population rate so you get a better yield. He's speaking here about giving. You give sparingly, you reap sparingly. You give bountifully, you reap bountifully. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And now this is always a bit of a delicate subject to preach on. That's why we're thankful when we have expository preaching when the text confronts us. And you can't, if you want to do justice to the text, you can't go over it, under it, or around it. You have to go through it. Part of why we ought to be eager to go off to our labors Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays so that we might then come on Sundays and present our tithe and our offering not grudgingly, not with kind of a, oh, really wish I didn't have to do this, but with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving that our God has remembered us. He has given us the ability uh, to gain a wage, and he has given us the opportunity to minister to those who have need. And so I ask the question, how are your giving practices? And I don't ask that question in a condemning way. This congregation is very, very generous. But I just ask the question for each of us to reflect by ourselves. How is our giving? Is it according to the Scripture? Both as far as amount, as a person prospers, but also as far as the attitude behind it, with cheerfulness, with gratitude towards God that God has blessed me with the ability to be engaged in vocational labor. And think of all of the aspects of providence that are included in that. God enables a person to have the physical strength to go out into labor. God enables a person to have a certain mental or cognitive ability to go out into labor. And in God's providence, and that's why often when we pray for crops and when we pray for industry, there's so, so much that's involved that's beyond our comprehension, but God's providence is over it all. So that all of the different wheels move in motion so that we might then have the opportunity to imitate our God as we bear His image and to engage in activity that is well-pleasing to Him and that He then, being a God who uses means, can bless us with the material prosperity which He has blessed us with so that we might enjoy life, that we might enjoy covenantal life with our God. And that one aspect of that enjoying that covenant life with God is that we might come in the context of the Christian 
congregation and also imitate or reflect something of God's grace and mercy. Because we who have received grace and mercy also ought to be those who then extend grace and mercy. Does that describe you? I trust that you are industrious. I trust that you are hardworking. And I would encourage us to continue to be hardworking, not to build our little empires, not to gain as much material possession as we possibly can, but to glorify our God and to enjoy Him forever. Not stealing from our fellow man either blatant or subtle forms of theft, but honestly, before the face of God, giving the entirety of our skill sets to what our hand finds to do, knowing that this is pleasing to God, so that then we might have that which we stand in need of, food, clothing, etc., shelter, and that we might come also with a tithe and an offering and appear in the presence of God to say, thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen.